I wonder as we <clears throat> prepare our hearts for the message, I, I wonder if you're one who likes to close your eyes and imagine or just leave your eyes open. Maybe close your eyes with me and imagine what it would be like. Imagine what it would be like to be in a room where there were maybe about 120 people in that room with you. And that group that you're in is praying. It's a group that has experienced some incredible things. You're in a room, you're praying, and you're praying to God because you're trying to understand what in the world's going on. You live in a time where there's a government that's in place that's oppressive. It's an oppressive government. It's a, it's a government that rules in, in, with an iron fist and and there's all sorts of gods that are being worshipped at the time, and, and it's a culture and a society where just about anything goes, and, and you're there, and you're in this room, and you're praying because you've just, you followed a, this man who said he was the Messiah, Jesus, and for two or three years you followed this man, and you were swept away by him. He did miracles, amazing miracles. He spoke things in a way that you never thought, never had heard before. He brought God to life. He let you see who God truly was, and, and it was amazing to be with him. Every morning was a morning where you would wake up and just couldn't wait to be with him. And then he died on a cross. A horrific death. And then he rose from the dead. And he appeared to you. And you thought, okay, everything's back to normal now. But he just went into heaven. He went up in a cloud and he's gone. And he told you to wait and to pray. Until the Holy Spirit came. And so you're in this room and you're praying. And all of a sudden, the room starts to shake. And the Holy Spirit comes in power. And, and all of a sudden, people are preaching and they're speaking in tongues that they never knew before. And Peter stands up in the midst of all of that and he begins to speak. And he speaks a message that, that is, is just shakes you to the core. And 3,000 people turned to the Lord that day. Imagine. Imagine what that would be like. I invite you to open your eyes. As you think of what that would be like and you think of what it would be to be in that upper room, I think sometimes we, we don't understand that that same power that was available to those 120 people is available to us. That in many ways, we are those people. You see, I can imagine for them, they thought of what, it, what does it mean to live by faith? What does it mean to be in this room and to be praying and to be wondering what are we waiting for? You see, there's a countercultural community that is the true church. There's this countercultural community. It's a, a people. It's a family it's those who have been called out to be rallied around a mission. 
And so 20, 30 years later, after Peter's in that upper room and after he begins to preach, the church has, has, has exploded. The world is changing. The world that, that was known at that time is changing because of this person, Jesus Christ, and the message that's going around. And so there's this group of people in modern-day Turkey up by the Black Sea, and they're part of the church. And this Peter is writing to them to say, listen, you are part of this community. You are a people. You are a family. And you've been called for a mission. And he says to them, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, the mission of the church is no different today than it was that day that they waited in the upper room and that they prayed, and the mission of the church has not changed. And Peter says to these people who are scattered, these people who are sojourners, strangers in the world, and he comes to them and he says, listen, you are a chosen people. You have been called out of the world. You are a holy nation. You are a people that is possessed by God. And you've been called out of darkness into this marvelous light. You've been called out of sin. You know what it is to serve sin. And you've been called out of that. And you've been called into this marvelous light of Jesus Christ. You've been set free for one purpose. So that you can make him known. So that you can declare his excellency. So you can declare his beauty. See, God reaches into the world and he calls us and he rescues us. And so as we look at this letter of 1 Peter and we're coming to now the section that's going to conclude this, this section that goes from 2.11 to 4.11 is this truth of, of Peter continuing to speak into this people and now into us of the mission that's been entrusted to us, the mission that we've been given We've been talking about what does it mean to live free. And this is the fifth and final week that we're looking at this idea of what does it mean to live free. And today we're looking at the fact that we are free to live in a way that glorifies God. We are free to live our lives in a way that glorifies God. And the first thing that we see as we look at that is that we can choose to live for the will of God. We're free to choose to live for the will of God. So Peter says, since therefore. So we realize we're continuing in the things that we've already looked at. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. As he starts to speak to the close out this section, he wants them to remember that they're in a battle. We need to arm ourselves. We need to be prepared. And they would, and he says, you need to be armed. And the thing that you need to arm yourself with is the same way of thinking as what Christ has. In chapter 2, verse 21, it says that, that Jesus suffered as an example for us. He's an example of suffering, and he's an example of how to suffer. And so Peter says to them, you need to arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ had. Now, what 
what is the way of thinking that Jesus has and had? In chapter 2, verse 24, 23, he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. See, to have the way of thinking of Jesus is to experience suffering in a way that entrusts yourself to God. To entrust yourself to God no matter what the circumstances are that are going on in your life. If you're experiencing suffering, and, and ideally he's talking about those who are suffering for standing for Christ, but it, it transforms to every part of suffering. If I suffer in a way that entrusts myself to God, then I'm suffering with the way of thinking that Jesus had. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus in the garden, wrestling. Lord, if you could take this cup, take it from me. If there was any other way for you to bring salvation in the world, God, this cup is, is a cup of pain and a cup of anguish. Is there any other way yet? Not what I will, but what you will. That's the way of thinking of Jesus. Not what I will, but what you will. No matter what I'm experiencing, that I could entrust myself to you, that I could have this kind of thinking, that I could arm myself with that, I could, I could go into the battle of what this world represents as I live here as a foreigner and a stranger, because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And it's like, well, yeah, I, I want to be done with sin. I don't know about you, but I would just as soon cease from sin. Can I get a witness? You know, and so Peter says, listen, if you want to cease from sin, suffer in the flesh with the same way of thinking that Jesus has. As I submit myself to the Father, as I entrust myself to God, as I say, not my will, but your will, I cannot stand in sin and say, your will. When I say, your will, God, in my life, and God begins to work his will in my life, I, he doesn't work his will through my sinning. I cease sinning when I release myself to his will. So as to live for the rest of the time in this flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This idea of passions, and, and Peter speaks of this over and over and over as he talks to them, and, and, and even as, as we begin to look in chapter 1, verse 14, and he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You may remember when we looked at that, this ignorance is not stupidity, it's lack of knowledge, it's a, it's a moral depravity, it's a moral blindness, it's not being able to see God. And so when you couldn't see God, you lived in a way where you served that which you could see, which was sin, and that's your, your passions that breed from that ignorance. But he says, instead, be holy as the one who called you is holy. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, beloved. And you remember, we looked at that and said, dearly loved. You are dearly loved by God. If you've come to a place where you know Christ is your Savior, you are dearly loved by him. And he says, you who are dearly loved, I urge you. 
as, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which war against your soul. And we looked at these little soldiers that are constantly warring against our soul and those passions of the human side of us, the flesh that is constantly drawing us to sin and it's constantly calling us to sin and it's warring against our soul. So we need to arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ, with a way of thinking of Christ so that we're able to stand against those. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should silence the talk, ignorance of foolish people. And so there's this, this beautiful truth that, as, as Peter says, live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the passions of this world, but for the will of God. And the will of God is that we would live in such a way our conduct would be such, and, and that's a big part of this letter to P, uh, from Peter, that our conduct would be such that it would silence talk of people who don't know God. It would silence them because they'd be able to see who God is. And so we are free to choose to live for the will of God. We're free to choose to put aside the sin and live for the will of God. Because we want to live in a way that glorifies God, so we choose to live for the will of God. The second thing is that we choose to live in light of eternity. If we're going to live our lives in such a way that we're going to be glorifying God, and, and what that means is to put the spotlight on him, right? Sometimes we think, what does it mean to glorify God? Basically, what it means is to put the spotlight on him, you know, so that if, if, like if we were on stage here and it was God and me, God would have the spotlight, not me. I'd be in the shadows. And so there's that idea that whatever I do, whatever I'm, wherever I am, the spotlight's on God. I am who I am because of who God is in my life. And so it's this idea that, that I, need to keep, I need to keep my mind in light of eternity as I do that. And Peter unpacks that a little for us. He says, for the time is past, the, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. He says, the time that's in the past suffices for doing that. It's sufficient. The time in the past is sufficient for doing what the pagans do. So what he's saying is that the time in the past is enough. The time in the past is sufficient for me to be choosing to do the things that are displeasing to God. The time in the past is sufficient for me to be doing the things that actually hurt me. The time in the past is sufficient for me to be doing the things that hurt other people. The time in the past is sufficient for me to be doing things that are sin-filled. The time in the past is sufficient for me to be doing things that, that defile my own thought process. The time in the past is sufficient for that. Enough already is basically what Peter's saying. There's enough. You've done it enough of that. And, and if you're like me, you realize that, right? Haven't you done enough sin already? Do, do you think you have? <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's enough. And Peter say, listen, if you're going to live for the will of God, you've got to keep eternity in mind. And to keep eternity in mind is to realize that you've had enough time to do the stuff that this world does. 
Because you're a stranger in this world, you're a sojourner in this world, you're an alien in this world, you're not a citizen of this world, you're a citizen of heaven who happens to be perhaps a citizen of the United States, but you are a citizen of heaven. And, and that's not how citizens of heaven act. There's enough time for doing that in the past. You've had enough living in sensual immorality and, and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties, lawless idolatry and, and, and selfishness and self-centeredness and pride and arrogance. And, and you know, I've enough already. With respect to this, these, the pagans, are surprised when you don't join in with them in the same flood of debauchery. They're surprised that you don't join in. Why aren't you wanting to be a part of this? Because you used to like it. And the truth is, sometimes I still give in to that stuff, right? And I have friends who wonder why I don't do the things I used to do. And they're surprised that I didn't do it because I was really good at it. And so they're surprised that you don't do these things because that's what everybody does. And not only are they surprised, but they begin to malign you. And maybe you've experienced this in your life. You've given yourself over to the Lord and you've begun to, to put these things in the rearview mirror. And, and the next thing you know, people are calling you a holy roller, Jesus lover, Bible thumper, whatever it may be. And people are maligning you. Could I ask you to consider that maybe if people aren't maligning you, maybe you haven't put this stuff in the rearview mirror. Maybe they're not surprised because maybe you are joining in. But they're going to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and dead. They will give an account to Jesus. Acts 10.24 tells us Jesus is the one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And so there will be an account. Now what this means for those of us who are living in light of eternity, for those of us who are choosing to do that, to live in light of eternity, what this means for us is not like, well, good, they deserve to give an account. They're not giving an account to me, but one day they're going to stand before Jesus. They're going to give an account. That's not what this means. What this means is that this breaks our heart. See, we realize and recognize that these people who are choosing these things, debauchery and all of those things, those people who have not given themselves over to Christ, those people who have not come to a saving knowledge of God, at one point they will stand before Jesus and they will give an account Every person you meet has an eternity that's waiting for them. Every person you meet has an eternity that's waiting for them. If they know Christ, they will be forever in his presence. If they don't, they will be forever separated from him in a place of conscious and eternal torment. And that breaks the heart of God. And for those of us living in the light of eternity, it breaks our heart as well. Because we realize and recognize that we've been brought out of darkness into marvelous light, not because of anything we've done, but because of him. And he's done that so that we can declare his beauty. We can proclaim his excellencies so that others can know that. For this is why the gospel was preached. Even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. 
So there's this idea here, <laughs> and what Peter isn't saying is that there's some second chance. It's not like he's saying that, that after a person dies, there's another opportunity for them to hear the gospel. Hebrews 9.27 tells us it's been appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. So he's not talking about that. In his second letter, in chapter 3, Peter talks to these same people and tells them, listen, there's scoffers among you. And those scoffers who are among you are saying, listen, who's this God? You're talking about God, but here it is. It's been, it's been 20, 30 years. He's still not here. See, you're just believing in something that's not true. You die the same way we do. Your bodies are gone. We've been to your funerals. We've seen the dead people. You're no better off than we are. And so we're judged in the flesh in the same way, but those who've died, who've gone before us, who have a relationship with Jesus Christ are in the presence of God right now alive and more alive than they ever were when they were on earth. And so they're alive because, you see, we live in light of eternity. And in light of eternity, we see that we have life with God in his presence. Paul talks about this. He says, now is the favorable time. Now is the time of salvation. I don't know you all. I know a lot of you. I know a lot of your stories, but I don't know all of them. Now, now is the favorable time. Have you ever come to a place in your life where you've realized that the choices you've made, the things that you've chosen that are, are not pleasing to God, those things that are sin have separated you from him and actually brought his wrath into your life and that you will spend eternity separated from him because of your choice to sin. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still in our sin, he sent Jesus to die for us. God came, took on flesh in the person of Jesus, and Jesus came and lived the perfect life, lived among us and revealed to us who God is. And, and even though he had done absolutely nothing wrong, they took him and they put him on a cross and they nailed him to the cross, and he willingly went and he died. And as he died, he bore the weight of the sin of every person who ever lived. And he made the offer to be forgiven. But it's an offer that must be received. Have you ever come to a point where you realize that your sin has earned the death, the separation from God, but that Jesus came to pay the penalty for your sin, and if you turn to God and you say, God, I realize I've sinned against you, and I realize I deserve to be separated from you, I realize I've chosen away from you, but I pray, God, that you'd forgive me. I pray that you'd forgive me and I pray that you'd take my life of sin and exchange it for your life of righteousness. I turn from the things that I've been doing and I turn toward you and I ask that you forgive me and I give you my life. I ask that you'd be my savior. If you've done that, you know what it means to be forgiven and to be set free. But if you've never done that, could I tell you that now is a favorable time? Right now? is a favorable time, it's a time of salvation, that you could come to a place where you could know God in the way that he designed for you to know him, to have an intimate relationship with him that changes your life and allows you to live in these steps of freedom that we've been talking about. That's why the gospel's preached to those who are dead. Do you know Jesus? 
I pray you do. Because those who do are free to live in a way that glorify God. They choose to live for the will of God. They choose to live in light of eternity. And finally, we can choose to be self-controlled stewards of God's grace. Self-controlled stewards of God's grace. And Peter goes, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is is at hand. So therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is near. Now here we are 2,000 years later, and you're like, if Peter wrote that it was near, what does that mean for us? It means it's nearer now than it was then. Amen? See, at times, the end of things is near. And to live, to live as though the end is near is to live every day in such a way that you're ready to look up and see Jesus standing before you. To live as though the end, of, is, the end is near is to live your life in such a way that you're constantly focused on your communication with him. That's your prayer. That, that you, are, you are spending time with his loving family in a special way. You are so focused on the fact that the end is near that you're confident that there's a moment in time where you're going to look up and you're going to see Jesus and you're living your life in such a way that you're ready for that to happen now. You hit, your, you hit the floor in the morning, your feet hit the floor, and you go, Lord, is it today? Is it today? I'm ready. But I'm going to be about your business till you get here. And that's what Peter unpacks in these next couple of verses. The end is near, so you need to be sober-minded. You need to be self-controlled. And what that means is, you, do you know, I am, I am a selfish person. So are you, right? We are selfish people. When you talk about self-controlled, what we're talking about is controlling selfish. And when Peter's talking to the church, he's saying, church, listen, you need to be praying. And, and those, who are, those who are self-focused, self-centered, self, they talk to themselves. They don't talk to God. See, when I'm self-controlled and when I'm sober-minded, when I'm not drunk with thinking about sin, when I'm rather, I'm focused on God. See, what he's talking about here is the end of all things is near, so you need to have a clear-headed look into the clouds. You need to have a clear-headed look into the clouds. We need to have our heads in the clouds, but it's a clear-headed look into the clouds. We're living looking upward. We're living looking forward. We're living with the understanding of who he is, and our minds are clear, and we've got our minds set and focused on him. We haven't allowed ourselves to be controlled by the passions that war against our soul. We're not feeding them. We're not sponsoring them. We're we're instead living as much as we can for the will of God so that we can be self-controlled and sober-minded so that our prayers can be answered. Hear us from heaven. Reach our generation. We need to be sober-minded, clear-minded when we offer that prayer so that, so that it's not hindered by, by selfishness or those kinds of things. And he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Paul puts that in Corinthians, that the greatest of these is love. There's this idea that we love the family 
earnestly. And that, that's found in chapter 1, verse 22, when he says the whole reason we've been set aside to be holy is so that we can love each other. In John 13, he tells Peter, Jesus tells Peter, a new command I give you, love one another. By this, all the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is above all. And so we have this idea that, it, listen, if we're going to be on task with, with thinking about eternity and being stewards of the grace that's given to us, we love each other with this passion and this earnesty because we realize that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, what does that mean? It means, listen, when I'm loving you, I'm putting myself aside. And so when I hear you and, and I hear what you're saying and I have a love for you, I'm listening to you. I'm listening to what you have to say. I'm not necessarily concerned about how it's impacting me. I'm trying to hear your heart. And so, so many of the things that we get wrapped up about, if, if we have this genuine love and hospitality for each other, we understand that we are, we are stewarding these things, we're caring for these things for God. And then Peter says, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Each has received a gift. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts in August. But there's this idea that each one of us have received a gift from the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's a powerful gift that he's given us in the body so that we can serve one another. See, again, we are this countercultural community that's been called to be focused around a mission. We're, we're in the battle and we need to be armed. And we be armed with a way of thinking of Jesus. And we need to be keeping each other armed with that same way of thinking. And we need to be serving one another so that we can be strengthened, so that we can go out into the battlefield of, that's raging all around us. The darkness that we've been called out of. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's a lot in these verses. To be a steward of God is to realize that glory and dominion belong to him. See, glory and dominion belong to God. Glory and dominion do not belong to God because I declare that they belong to God. They belong to God because they're his. To him belongs glory and dominion. For me is to recognize his glory and dominion. That's what's for me, to recognize it and to declare it, that it's his. And when I do that, I begin to realize that I'm just a steward because it's all his. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24. Everything belongs to God. So I am a steward of everything I have. My time, I'm a steward. My talents, I'm a steward. The gifts that he gives me, I'm a steward. The relationships I have, I'm a steward. The things that I own are really things that I steward for him because to him belongs dominion and glory. 
And so as I realize this place that I have as a steward, what Peter's saying is, listen, if the gift that you've been given is a speaking gift, and there's several of those, or if it's a serving gift, either way you do that, you do that as a steward of God. So it means if you speak, you speak as though God were speaking. When you serve, it's as if God were serving. You're stewarding it in such a way that you're doing with it what God would do with it. That's what it means to be a steward. It's to recognize and realize what I've been given has been given to me by God and he's entrusted it to me so that I will use it in the way he would use it if he were here using it. That relates to our children. It relates to our spouses. It relates to our mother-in-laws. It relates to our co-workers. It relates to, our, it relates to all of these things. How am I taking care of these things in the way God would be taking care of them if he were here because he's entrusted me to steward these things to him, for him, which is what puts the spotlight on him. It glorifies him. Because his is the glory and dominion. So what? How can I purposefully seek to glorify God in every interaction this week? What changes need to come to my heart and my life, my thoughts, my words, my actions? How can I have every moment of my time Bring glory to God. How can I steward every moment to be able to say, God, what is this time for? How can I use it for you? What is this money for? How can I use it for you? What is this relationship for? How can I use it for you? What is this job for? How can I use it for you? And to be able to hold those things before him. That comes as we're able to get to a place in our life where we say, there's been enough time in the past to do the things that are selfish. There's enough time in the past to do those things. That time has been sufficient. But now, now the time is favorable. Now's the time for me to honor you with every word, with every thought, with every action. Now's the time to live my life in a way that pleases God. So Lord, as we think of that going into this week, the beautiful truth that there's been enough time in the past to do the things that are hurtful and harmful and sinful, but that now, the time has come for us to live our lives in a way that brings honor and glory to you.